PCC, what is up? We are so glad you're here today. I'm Ellis Hobson. I'm Mark Tapscott. And we're here for a few minutes before we get into the service to just hang out with you guys, tell you a little bit about what's going on, and get you ready for what you're going to experience today. So, mm. Mark, how are you doing, man? Man, I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, it's, it's been a great, uh, it was a great Sunday last Sunday. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I got to be online for all three services last week and hang out with you guys. It was really cool. And I'll be doing that a lot more now because I'm really focused on the online campus. And uh, so you'll be seeing me most Sundays in the chat room. So I hope you'll sign in, create an account, and chat with us and, uh, and join us. Very cool. And he'll, you'll be seeing Mark here with us uh, every once in a while, kind of rotating in with myself and Elijah. So that'll be cool. You'll be seeing a lot more of this guy. Um, we start a brand new series today, which new, is exciting. New series, yeah. But that means we just finished up a series. Yes, so it was an awesome series. Too. It was. It was awesome. Free me. Yes. Elijah and I kind of like to we like to put a bow on the series once a we're bow. finished up with it. So just tie a little ribbon on it. Um, so take the whole series. Yes, sir. What what stood out? Your your general uh, your overall thoughts. There's one week in particular that just really kind of wrecked me a little bit, mm-hmm. and that was Angie Frames week. Mm. And uh, it was just so good. Uh, and I'm trying to remember exactly what the takeaway because <laughs> I saw a message last week that wasn't Angie. Yeah. But it was about loving. Um, oh, it was freedom to. It's free to live. Free to live. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, be free to live. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd never looked at it quite the way that she brought it out. And so it gave me a lot of new stuff to think about. And, uh, and am I really living out everything that I say I believe? Mm-hmm. And. And is it evident evident there? And uh, how can I do that better? And so, yeah, she just really, really opened my eyes to a lot of things. That's awesome. And she's always awesome. But the whole series was great. Your week was awesome. You kicked it, you kicked it off, didn't you? Did you not? I was week two. Number two. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they all run together after all, right? <laughs> so, but, and this week we start a brand new series. Yes, yeah. correct. But correct. before we ask that, what was your favorite week? Um, it was your week, of course. No, no, I'm definitely not going to pick myself. That would be very self-serving. Um, I think week one, uh, Pastor Vernon was here, oh, and he talked about oh, free yeah. to forgive. He had the, he had the thing chained to him, yes. and he was trying yeah, to get away. Yeah, the bungee cord. Yeah, yeah that was from, cool. Yeah, that was really good. I thought that like uh, that illustration was really effective. Yeah, there was not a bad week in the whole series, man. Nope. It was like solid every week. It was like, man, this is just getting so good. And most every Sunday is like that around here. So why am I surprised, right? I know, right? Yeah, I feel like we got a pretty good, pretty good track record. Right. You know, right? Pretty good. Well, let me have today. We we'll start off today with who? Uh, we start off today with our friend Elijah. That's Elijah. why he's not here. I mean, okay. I mean, it's just got rock stars. He's in there writing you know? the message right now as we speak. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> we'll tell you about that series a little closer to before we start the service. Oh, but okay. um, hey, Elijah is kicking off this series right after we get back from our student mission trip. So the guy is just a machine. Oh, um, what we're true. saying is he just does everything. Okay. Um, we just got back from Huntington, West Virginia, with our students. Uh, they spent a week helping people in the community there. Uh, putting new roofs on houses, building ramps, building decks, all kinds of things like that, painting community centers. I know you one said group, they did. Did you do any of that? Uh, I, I did my share. You know, <laughs> I did a fair bit of supervising, too. Uh, okay. I did a little bit of this, you know, hey, make sure that's straight, paint that over there, you know. True or false? Yes. Did you get on a roof in Huntington, West Virginia? False. I was oh. on a deck crew. <laughs> You're on like, a deck crew, okay. I was not on a roof this year. I want to see Ellis on a roof. That would, uh, be, that would be amazing. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put it that way. No, you don't. Uh, I don't. I don't love heights. I, I've heard that. Like, yeah, I do roller coasters and stuff, but just kind of standing over 
some giant height. I don't. You can like stand under the roof and catch stuff that falls off the roof. Yeah, like nails that come rolling down. That's usually what I'm doing. Or if it's like if it's like right at the peak, like right in the middle where you can't see over the edge. Other side. I can handle that. Okay. So sweet. But um, (laughs) it was an awesome week. It was really impactful for our students. The they did a great work all week. Worship was great. Community was great. It was awesome. So great. I can't wait to hear some of the stories from the kids, and I hope you'll share those with us as we unwrap some of these weeks. You'll hear some stories maybe of uh, things that happened no uh, doubt. during the mission trip. Yeah. Uh, kids always come back changed. I said that last week. They always come back changed, and I always uh, I love hearing from them. And uh, several of them will call me sometimes. They go, hey, I went on this mission trip, and I'm just so excited. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> it's like this light bulb has just gone off for them, and uh, it's amazing. So I hope you will go on a mission trip. If you're a student, I hope you'll sign up for a mission trip. If you're an adult, consider going as a chaperone, and uh, it'll change your life. Yeah. We're already talking about where we're going to go next year, mm-hmm. so it should be not very long how, how before How do you top Huntington, West Virginia? I mean, that's like the pinnacle of, of places to go visit. But. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty cool because what was cool about it was the whole town was within, like, 15 minutes. Right. There was not a drive longer than 15 minutes, <laughs> which was pretty awesome. So. Right. It was convenient, for sure. And, uh, you know, there were plenty of places to go take the kids for ice cream or whatever when we were done for the day. So Last cool. year last year was South Carolina, right? It was, yeah, yep. South Carolina and West Virginia, so yeah. Maybe yep. you'll get to go to, like, Wyoming or something. It's possible. <laughs> Who knows? We'll find out in short order. But you can go. You will, we'll, we'll, let, we'll definitely let you know when awesome. we decide where we're going to go. So how are you right. feeling? A little tired. A little Still tired. catching up on a little sleep. Okay. But, uh, you know, I'm here. I'm good. I'm ready. It's hard, hard directing all that stuff at the deck, wasn't it? Yeah. A lot of logistics, you know. Um, all right, we've we've dragged this on long enough. I think we've built the suspense long enough too. We've okay. started a brand new series today. Mark, why don't you tell yeah. them what it's about? It is called On the Water, and I don't know about you, but I love being near water. There's something very refreshing about it. There's something very spiritual about it. I can go sit at the beach. I've got a beach vacation plan in, in August, and I love to sit there at the beach and just look out at the ocean and just wonder about all the things that are in the ocean and what's across the ocean. And uh, when I go fishing, I like to sit out on a lake in a boat and be on the water. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to explore. There's lots the Bible says about water and being around water. And so I can't wait to see. I haven't read any of their notes yet, but I can't wait to see how each person will impact their week. Mm-hmm. So yeah, on cool. the water. Yeah, plenty of story. Like, like Mark said, plenty of stories in the Bible, plenty of moments where water is really essential to what's happening. So It'll be cool to have a whole series to unpack some of those. And uh, this series is going to take us through to the end of the summer. So we're going to spend quite a lot of time here, and uh, I think there's plenty of material to work with. So Absolutely. It'll be cool. All right, well, it's about that time. It's that time. On the water week one, we're getting ready to start you ready to right row? now. No, ready? Get ready to row. Ready to row? <laughs> ready? <laughs> Three, I don't... two, one. Hey, let's go. See you in there. At PCC, we take Jesus seriously. When he said, love God with all your heart, we think he actually meant it. So, we do. about God from passionate teachers. We make worship and studying the Bible a daily part of our lives. We wrestle with Scripture together and on our own. And we go wherever He leads us to help others do the same thing. Jesus also said, 
love your neighbor as yourself. And we think he meant that too. So we spend time together because we think relationships matter. We offer help when it's needed. We live generously. We give sacrificially. And we welcome everybody. We take Jesus seriously, but not ourselves. We're the least likely people with the most amazing God and a passionate vision to love God and to love others. To reach people who don't go to church so that we can all know God, discover purpose, get real, make a difference, and be the change. so glad you are here today. Welcome to church. And got him on my knees again. And got him begging, please again. I need you. Oh, I need you. Your grace. 
What a great way to start our time together. I'm Tanner Iglio, and I'm so glad that you joined us today for church. We're kicking off a new series that's called On the Water, and we're so excited about what we're going to hear, what we're going to see, and what we're going to sing together over the next few weeks, including one of our favorites right now. So let's get excited together. I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my tomb Till I met you I was breathing but not Alive. All my failures I try to hide. It was my tomb. Not anymore. Till I met you. Come on. You call my name. Into your glorious day You called my name And I ran out of that grave Out of the darkness Into your glorious day Now your mercy Now your mercy has saved my soul Now your freedom is all that I know Come on! The old man knew Jesus when I met you Oh, what a day When you called my name God about all that he's done for us and who he is. I need a rescue, my sin was heavy, the chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter, I wasn't orphan, now you call me a citizen of heaven. When I was broken, you were my healing, now Into your 
are faithful. And I believe the promise from Psalm 32 that says, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no
how good it is to be children of God, to know that we don't have to be slaves to fear. We can be safe and wrapped up in the arms of our Father. Thank you for being here to worship with us. Hi, I'm Angie Frame, pastor of our Midlothian campus. And I'm Mark Tapscott. I get to be your pastor here with the online campus. And I'm grateful to spend this time with you. I'd like to help you however I can. So please take a minute and submit a welcome card so that I know the best way to help you, whether that's praying for you or sending you some information that will help you as you explore church, our church, and a relationship with God. You know, last week we wrapped up our Free Me series talking about how God can use us to help free other people. We hope that you found some opportunities to serve others like you're free. This more relaxed schedule of summer is a great time to do good. So consider accepting our Do Good Challenge as an individual, a family, or a small group. Find a way to serve someone and then share it with us on the website so that we can celebrate all that God does through our church this summer. Now, we're always inspired by the men at our Nottaway campus inside a prison. They lead the way in being generous with their prayers, their money, and their influence. Now, some of them live more freely than many of us do, and it's an honor to be church with them. Yes, so we are so excited that God has opened the door for us to do another campus inside a prison, this time with women. We've signed the papers, and soon we will be launching our next microsite inside Virginia Correctional Center for Women. It's in Goochland, Virginia, just 10 minutes from this broadcast location. We can't wait to meet the ladies there. So sign up on the website to receive updates and see opportunities to be part of what is happening. Now God keeps expanding our reach beyond our dreams. From one physical campus to five and this online campus, from one small town to throughout the world, and now from one prison to another. God's inviting us to do more, to reach more people in more places. And what honor that he entrusts us with so much of his work. In the Bible, Jesus talks about how those who are faithful with few things will be entrusted with many things because you have been faithful. God is enlarging our capacity to share his love and truth with others. Thank you for stepping out in faith and trusting God with some of your money to accomplish his work. Now you can be part of it. Take a minute to give securely on our website right now. Would you pray with us? God, we thank you that we get to watch you do what only you can do right in front of us. God, as we are excited about reaching these ladies in this prison, uh, just like we have seen you reach people in the Nottaway campus. And we get to watch you work at all of our campuses. And God, it's because of your faithfulness that we praise you today. Thank you for allowing us to be part of that with you. And thank you for the folks that give and of their time, their resources, and their money and trust you with it to make these things happen. And so God, we just take a minute to pause and say thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness, and for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today kicks off our new series, On the Water, and we're gonna get started with a fun song that's all about that. We hope you enjoy. You're sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in I watch them roll away again yeah. 
late 90s all the way through the mid-2000s, on the hollowed grounds of the Myrtle Beach Travel Park, there was a boy. Standing at roughly 5 foot 7 inches, 160 pounds, this boy was known around the campground. As an almost ritualistic visitor of this sacred travel destination, the boy and his family were well-known members of this camping community. 
They recognized the faces in the trailers of their nomadic neighbors and walked around as if each of them were longtime friends and close-knit family. The boy would make his periodic mile-long walk to the restroom, greeting his fellow man as he passed by. Tim, Susan, Rick, good to see ya. His foster family, made up of mostly shirtless men whose body hair would trick your eyes into thinking they still had shirts on, and women who wanted nothing more than a few moments of peace and quiet at the beach but probably weren't going to get it, would respond to the boy's salutations in kind. Raising a toast in the form of a koozie encased can of Bud Light from the comfort of their collapsing camp chairs. This enduring gesture of goodwill, paired with the subtle but powerful downward head nod, communicated so much more than any words could to the boy. We see you. You're home now. Year after year, the boy would long for the tranquility of this holy place, and every year was better than the last. That is, until 2003. When the boy arrived in July of 2003, something was off. The air that normally brought him a great sense of peace was now dense and almost cold. As the boy and his family drove toward their usual camping spot, the boy noticed that the collapsible camping chairs were gone. The grills were closed, the charcoal cold. The koozies laid empty. Instead, all he could see were eyes peering through the barely separated blinds of his fellow vacationers, gazing deep into his soul. People who he once considered family felt more like rivals. Needless to say, the boy felt unsettled, and his maiden voyage to the restroom felt every bit like a mile and then some. And when he arrived at the restroom, mentally exhausted after trying to decipher what sort of evil force or magic had come over his beloved home away from home, he was met with the answer on the front of the restroom door. And in an instant, the squinted looks of rivalry and competition all made sense. It was a sign, a message, a challenge all in Comic Sans. Splash Contest, 3 p.m., Big Pool. Winner gets five free ice cream tokens for the snack bar. A small, sly smirk dripping with incredible levels of confidence stretched across the boy's face as he finally put the pieces together. A single splash, five free ice creams, one shot. Now, no wonder things felt like they changed. Of course, everyone seemed different. Things had changed. They were different. Competition was afoot. And when the time came, the boy was ready. He and seven of his adult male peers lined the edge of the pool, each patiently waiting for their big moment to come. The boy stood in line. His palms were sweaty. His knees weak. His arms were heavy. He was nervous, but on the surface, he looked calm and ready. And one by one, each of the other participants took their chance and made their splash. For some, it was clear the moment they hit the water that they had no chance. 
However, a couple of men jumped off the diving board as if they were grizzled veterans of the Myrtle Beach Travel Park Splash Contest. Oozing confidence, these water warriors took to the skies in a way that seemed to defy gravity. When they eventually returned back to earth and hit the water, the boy knew he'd never be able to compete with the sheer magnitude of the splashes being created before him. He'd never make that one that big. That's no problem, the boy thought. I'm doing it a different way. You see, the boy knew that the splash didn't need to be the biggest. Being 13 years old, going head-to-head against grown adults, told the tens of bystanders nearby everything they needed to know. The boy's heart was the biggest. So when it was finally his turn, he stepped onto the diving board, determined to do what he set out to do all along. And with an agility that couldn't be matched by his beer-drinking buddies, he sprinted down the rough surface of the plank, put everything he had into his dismount, and executed the iconic cannonball to the absolute best of his ability. And when the boy finally arose from underwater, he knew he had won. Everyone who had turned on each other just hours before were now all in agreement. The boy was the champion. And they cheered and shouted as if the boy were their own son. And moments later, the boy received his prize. Immortalization at the Myrtle Beach Holiday Travel Park. And five free ice creams. At the time, this was probably the best moment of my young life. And although my story is about as true to the source material as based on a true story movies are to theirs, it really did happen. And the memory of being on the water that day is seared into my mind forever. I'm willing to bet that everyone here has some fond memories of being on the water as well. Whether it's a pool, a pond, a lake, a river, an ocean, most of us have had great experiences on the water. Summer vacations with friends and family, quiet mornings of solitude, playdates with our kids, birthday parties, kids and student events here at church in the summertime. All of these things always involve water. Of course, water isn't just for recreation. Water is around us all the time. In the room you're sitting in right now, there's water running through all of the pipes hidden inside your walls and under your cabinets. And if you're outside, there's probably a body of water nearby, and it, of course, is in the air itself. But even if that isn't true somehow, there's water hundreds of feet below you at all times. And even if somehow that's not true, and you find yourself in a place you knew didn't have water anywhere nearby, it would still be around you because it's in you. Our bodies are made mostly of water, so it's inescapable and it's vital. The writers of the Bible knew this too, and it's why they often use water as a metaphor for God's love, generosity, peace, power, and provision. Just like water, these things are around us all the time. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to explore biblical stories that involve water in one way or another, and more importantly, use the backdrop of water to show us God's renewal, revival, and restoration in our lives and around the world. And we'll begin with the story that is often misunderstood and misrepresented. Much like my story of the splash contest, this biblical story is often retold in a way that 
adds incorrect details and subtracts the story beats that matter most. And this is the story of Jonah. Now, by a show of hands, wherever you are right now, how many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? It's cool to raise your hands, and it's, it's, it's okay if you're not familiar with the story of Jonah. In fact, it might be better if you're not, because those of us who are, who often grew up hearing it, heard an incomplete version of his story. See, when I think back to hearing this story as a kid, I remember it going a little something like this. Jonah asked God to go to a city called Nineveh and preach to them. But Jonah's afraid, so he heads to a place called Tarshish. When he gets on the boat to go there, a big storm comes and Jonah falls off the boat into the water. And in order to save his life, God sends a giant fish to swallow him and take him back to dry land. Now, once Jonah is saved, he finally heads to Nineveh, preaches to them about God's love and forgiveness, they repent of their sins, and everyone lives happily ever after. It's a nice tale that makes us feel good when we read it like that, even if the bit about the fish doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. Jonah overcomes his fear. He preaches God's word, and people are saved as a result. But when you read the actual story of Jonah from the pages of the Bible, you find that it's not all sunshine and roses. Now, Jonah's life, real life, is much more nuanced and complicated and frustrating sometimes and convicting than the story some of us heard growing up. But I'd argue that it's because of this that it also has so much more application for our lives today. So can we set the record straight? Forget what you may or may not know about the story of Jonah, and let's dive into the reality of this fascinating look into his life. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, before we go any further, it's important to know that Jonah was a prophet meaning God would use him to deliver a message to a group of people about a particular event or a blessing or a warning that was to come. And so in this case, God asked Jonah to head to a city called Nineveh to preach against it because its wickedness has come up before God. Of course, instead of doing that, Jonah decides that he's going to run away from the Lord and head towards Tarshish. So far, the kid's version of this story doesn't seem too far off. In fact, if we do a little digging and find out a bit about who the Ninevites were in his day, Jonah running away from God out of fear actually kind of makes sense. See, the biblical depiction of Nineveh, which is the capital, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, it's always negative, as their city represented everything that God stands against. Idol worship, sexual immorality, greed, lust, ego, the love of money and wealth, brutality toward others, and so much more. Additionally, around the time Jonah lived, the Assyrians were a legitimate threat to completely conquer God's people, the Israelites. In short, the Ninevites would have been considered the enemies of God in almost every way by every Israelite. That includes Jonah. So when Jonah is asked to go to the heart of this volatile, dangerous nation and preach against them, fear seems like it would be the appropriate response, right? I mean, consider this. America, we don't really have a modern equivalent of this tension, really, but the Ukraine does. Imagine being a Ukrainian right now 
and being called by God to go into Moscow and preach against Russia. Would you? Or how about a Jewish person during World War II being asked to march into Berlin and preach against Nazi Germany? Would you do that if it were you? These are the kind of stakes Jonah is facing. So had Jonah been afraid to do this, it would have been pretty reasonable. However, we'll find out that he didn't run because he was afraid. That's the first major detail that the story you might have heard growing up gets wrong. But we'll get to that in a moment. After this, Jonah heads towards Tarshish via boat, and while they're on the water, God sends a violent storm that threatens to destroy the vessel. Jonah's terrified pagan crewmates who are manning the ship, this just means they worshiped other gods who weren't our God, the God of Israel, they're at a complete loss, and they begin praying to these gods, who of course aren't real, so of course this does nothing. So they ask Jonah what in the world is happening and why he isn't praying to his God. Jonah tells them that the storm is there because he's running from God. And if they were to throw him overboard, the storm would subside. It sounds nice. Jonah says, just get rid of me. You'll live. Sacrifice my life for yours. Again, not actually the case. We'll get there in just a moment. So the crewmates, they reluctantly do this. And sure enough, he's right. The storm stops. And while Jonah's at sea without a boat, sinking to certain death, God sends a giant fish to swallow him and save his life. And although this is the part you've probably heard, we're actually going to skip this part because while it's mysterious and seems impossible and therefore usually steals the spotlight in this story, it's honestly one of the least important moments for us today. So Jonah is eventually spit back onto dry land by the fish where God says to him again, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, proclaim to it the message I give you. So God asked him a second time to go, and this time, Jonah finally does. And when he arrives in Nineveh, Jonah gives what could be the shortest, laziest, and least meaningful sermon of all time to the Ninevites. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Wow. Meaningful. Eight words. Zero context. In Hebrew, it's actually only five words. Like, but if you heard this, right? So the Bible describes Jonah, he's just walking through the city saying this to whoever's there, just walking by. Hello, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Hi, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Like, can you imagine? There'll be so many questions. Like, who are you? Who actually said this? Is that a threat? Overturned, 40 days, who's gonna do this? Like, this helps no one, basically. And to me, it's like what a person would do if they wanted to put forth the absolute bare minimum effort while still completing the task. And although I love them, I love them to death, teenagers are super good at this. There's no offense. Like I said, I love teenagers so much. It's part of like what I do with my life is work with teenagers. But there's something about being that age that makes doing the bare minimum appealing. And this isn't all teenagers, of course, so don't be mad at me. But it seems to appear a lot here. For example, just over a week ago, PCC took over 70 teenagers and 30 adults to West Virginia on a mission trip to help the people of Huntington with some critical repairs to their homes. And I got to tell you, 
These teenagers busted their butts all week in 90 plus degree weather. They did amazing work. In fact, on all of our socials, you can find some pictures of this. You should check them out. So as kind of a reward, the local elementary school that was graciously hosting us let us use their gym during free time. It was a nice gym. This school is like brand new. So the students spent a ton of time in there when they weren't on the work sites. Of course, after a few days passed and we got a little more comfortable with our surroundings, a little more comfortable with the school, things started getting left in the gym, like journals, Bibles, hats, shoes, trash, wrappers, all kept getting left in the bleachers. So as a result, Mission Serve, the organization that we were there with, they warned us, they warned the students that if they, they would close the gym if they kept leaving stuff in there. Sure enough, this didn't work. And by Tuesday night, the gym was shut down. Now, the, the gym being taken away lit a fire under the students who they promised that if the gym would be opened back up, they'd make sure it was clean. Cool. And it seems noble on the surface, right? It seems like we're going to do this, whatever, until they actually clean the gym. See, here's what happened. They picked everything up, swept all the dirt, collected all the wrappers, hats, books, whatever was in there. It did not matter. They did not discriminate. And they put all of it in a single pile just outside of the gym door. Like I said, they didn't distinguish between things that were trash and weren't trash. All the trash and dirt mixed in with the clothes and the Bibles. None of it was actually in the trash can. All of it was just far enough to technically be outside of the gym. And that's pretty much it. Just right there, right outside the gym doors. I don't know, like little squirrels collecting their stuff. Just right there. So maybe Jonah was a teenager at this time when, he, when God asked him to do this. I don't know. But he did the same thing. Technically, he did what God asked him to. But he got just over the line, just outside of the gym doors. But the thing is, is even though Jonah almost gave no effort, God doesn't need much to do miraculous things. See, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on a sackcloth. That's just a way to show remorse and regret for the things they had done. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust, a sign of humility. When God saw what they, had, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is usually where the story ends. But when we end it here, we lose the glue that brings all of these events together. We miss out on the actual meaning of this story. And while it is great, it's so great to read about God's compassion on the Ninevites, it's not the primary reason the author decided to put this story on paper. It was more like this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Ah, there it is. 
After all this time, Jonah finally reveals why he fled from God in the first place, why he asked to be thrown overboard in the storm, and why he gave such a lousy message to the Ninevites when he arrived. He wasn't afraid of these people. He hated them. He hated the Ninevites so much that he would give away his own life to deny them the opportunity to be forgiven by God. In fact, if there was any fear in Jonah at all, it was fear that God would continue to be the God he's always been. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, even for Jonah's enemies. Jonah was convinced that God would forgive them but he believed to his core that they didn't deserve it. So he tried to run. And that's just the thing. God knew this about Jonah, of course. God knew the resentment Jonah was harboring toward these people. In fact, I'd argue it's why he chose Jonah for this particular task in the first place. God could have sent anyone or done anything he wanted to to accomplish this, but he chose Jonah. Why? Well, because Jonah needed correction just as much as the Ninevites. God was trying to teach Jonah an important lesson about his forgiveness while also trying to draw a nation of people back to him. So in response to Jonah's anger, he asked him this simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Many of you here today have experienced hurt, pain, guilt, and shame because of something someone else did to you, said to you, or put you through. You've experienced physical, emotional, and mental pain as a result of the things they've done. They lied to you. They cheated on you. They said deeply hurtful things about you to other people. They left you. And sometimes these people are complete strangers. But more often than not, the things that hurt the most come from the ones closest to you, like parents or spouses, best friends, or our children. And the more and more things like this happen, the more and more resentment grows, building up and taking root inside of you toward those people that hurt you. And eventually that might lead you to even believe that they should be beyond God's love and compassion because they've made their choice and God shouldn't forgive them for the horrible things that they have done to you. Now, this also happens when we aren't directly affected by something, but we can see the hurt it causes others. Like when we really stop and think just how much evil there seems to be in our world, when we look around at all the senseless violence and exploitation and selfishness carried out across the globe every day, it's hard not to feel anger and bitterness toward the people who are behind it. They don't deserve God's forgiveness because of the evil things that they do, right? And it's easy for us to feel justified in believing this because 
almost everyone else in the world believes they don't deserve redemption. So why can't we believe it? Of course, we can see ourselves this way too. If we're the ones who have done awful things to others, if we're the ones who have made choices that have had negative consequences, and if you and I have wrecked our lives because we made bad decision after bad decision, then we feel the same anger and bitterness toward ourselves. We exclude ourselves from God's mercy because we feel like we don't deserve it. God wouldn't want me. God doesn't care about me. I'm the evil one. Is it right for you to be angry at him? Is it right for you to be angry at her? At them? At yourself? This is the question God is asking all of us through Jonah's story. Because like Jonah, a lot of us know that God is a merciful God. God is compassionate. He is faithful and he is so quick to forgive We know this not only because it's so prevalent in the pages of the Bible, but because we've experienced it ourselves. God has been all of those things to us, who, by the way, are people who do not deserve it either. And yet, when we think about the people who hurt us, who hurt others, or in some cases, when we think about ourselves, we want to limit the depths of God's forgiveness for them. Why? Why? It's because there's a breakdown between how we view these people and how God views them. God shows us this difference when he says to Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? See, Jonah saw the Ninevites as evil. They did evil things and evil people do evil things, right? That's the logic our world follows. And on paper, it seems to make sense. But God doesn't operate under the same logic our world does, thank goodness. For God, the Ninevites weren't evil people because they did evil things. They were lost people. And as a result, they did evil things. When he says they cannot tell their right hand from their left, it's another way of saying that they just don't know any better. They don't know any better because they were lost They had no clear direction, no true sense of how life should be lived because they've been disconnected from God for a long time. They've lost their way. And the natural consequence of drifting away from God is the temptation to do evil things, the things they were doing. Now, does that mean there were no consequences for their actions? Does that mean there's no consequences for the actions of people who hurt you? No. When someone hurts you, they're saying, ah, they just don't know any better. Does that take away the hurt? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that their actions are okay? No, their actions are still evil. And I'm not trying to justify or make light of the legitimate pain that you felt. What I'm saying is, is that God's compassion and his mercy dictates that he always sees people far from him as lost, not evil. God always pursues the lost and would stop at nothing to bring them back. This is all through the Bible. We've seen it all in our lives. Just check out Luke 15 if you want multiple stories about this. And as people who love God, you and I, as people who love God, whenever we come across somebody who's lost, what is our natural reaction? Do we harbor resentment and anger toward them for being lost? Or do we try and help them find their way? 
Ultimately, God loves everyone and his forgiveness isn't limited by anyone or anything. And Jonah knew that. God shows that time and time again to Jonah, to the Ninevites through his forgiveness, to the sailors at the beginning of his story. Jonah just didn't like it. He didn't like that God loved his enemies. And we know that God loves everyone and his forgiveness isn't limited by anyone or anything. God has shown us time and time again in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. But are we like Jonah? Do we not like that God loves our enemies? And in the end, that's the real question God poses to Jonah. It's the same question that he asked us all these years later. Is it okay that God loves my enemies? You know what's the most fascinating thing about the book of Jonah, though? Is that scripture we read where God asked Jonah a question? That's the end of it. God asked the question and then nothing. We don't ever get Jonah's response to the question. We never get to see Jonah consider another perspective. We don't get a chance for any real resolution in the story. It just ends leaving this critical question unanswered. So today, I'm going to leave this question unanswered too. I believe this was an intentional move by the writer of Jonah in order to force us as the readers and hearers of it to carefully consider the question for ourselves. I mean, after all, I can't actually answer the question for you. Jonah can't answer the question for you. And if Jonah's answer would have been given to us in the Bible, I think we'd have been tempted to copy and paste it because it's in the Bible. And although that might feel better or easier, it would rob us of the opportunity to grow. See, through my own personal experience, I know that when we dig into the questions about our faith and how it ought to inform our lives, it's because of the journey toward the answers that we often learn and grow the most. So what will we do? What will you do? My challenge for you is to reflect on the person or people who hurt you, the people who hurt others, and yourself. Is it okay that God loves them, even though they're your enemies? Wrestle with these hard questions. Spend time with God and with the Bible and with a trusted friend. Take whatever time you need to address this in your life. And as you do, be open to God's answer for you and put it into practice. Ask yourself the question, is it okay that God loves my enemies?
again. I need you. Oh, I need you. Walking down this desert road, water for my thirsty soul. I need you.
Don't waste no 